Exes for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things movies, music, media, comics, and more, check out Cage Club at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Hey everybody, welcome back to Exes for Podcasts, the show where we take a look at mutants, magic, and more through Marvel's many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Today we have two terrific issues for you, plus a little bit more information on something a lot of our fans have been asking about. Josh, Arturo, Drew, and Evelyn are going to take a look at X-Force 19 by Percy and Brown. Then we're going to have Nathan, Maddie, and Kyle discuss Mighty Valkyries Number 1 by Aaron Grunbeck and D. Lewis, but I also want to talk for a minute about a kind of hot topic that's come up a lot in our discussions lately. One of the things that we seek to do on this show is to discuss the new titles as fully as possible. We're not really a traditional review show, we're here more to discuss the ideas that are being presented. And that often leads to calling back to classic issues or previous runs. And I know that with X-Men renumbering, transitioning from Jonathan Hickman's pen to that of Jerry Dugan, we're seeing a powerful discussion about legacy numbering and restarts. And a couple of years ago, when Marvel launched its legacy initiative, they had done some work to put together some slides to explain some of the more interesting renumberings. For instance, Cable 107 was the final issue of the original run of the series proper, while there had been miniseries on top of that. That was the final issue of that original run. It was followed up by Soldier X, which was 12 issues. Now, according to Marvel's legacy numbering, that brings Cable to 119 issues. There were then two more series, a 25-issue series and a 5-issue series, which generate 30 more issues, which allowed Ed Brisson and John Mallon to launch Cable 150, a couple of years ago. We saw sort of similar mathematic work done with Deadpool, where they added in some of his minis, but not some of his regular titles. Like, they got real creative here. It's Deadpool the Circle Chase 1 through 4, Deadpool 1 through 4, Deadpool 1 to 69, Agent X 1 through 15, which sort of ran really parallel to that sort of Soldier X Cable universe. It's a good thing there. Cable Deadpool got counted 50 issues toward Deadpool, but not Cable. (laughs) You know, I know Cable wasn't in it toward the end, but that's still interesting. Deadpool then had a 2008 series, ran 63 issues. 2013 series ran 45 issues, and his 2015 series ran 36 issues, allowing Jerry Dugan and Scott Koblish to launch the Despicable Deadpool with number 287. Now, Generation X hadn't had quite as much to recount to give it its solid number 85. There was the original 75-issue series from 1994, and then the first nine issues of the relaunch, which then brought them to 85 by Christina Strain and Amokarpina. Now, that information was made really conveniently available by Marvel using their legacy slides, which were released at the time of this big Marvel Legacy initiative. Now, I know that there's a number of people that were really hoping that X-Men would reach a high number again and get to some of those 200s, 300s, and I'm of the same mind. I kind of think numbers are secondary. They're really just window dressing. I would love legacy numbers, and whenever you want to kick things off again, just 
toss a number one next to it. Now, Uncanny X-Men didn't get the same renumbering treatment as the other titles during Legacy. The original run of Uncanny X-Men ran 544 regular issues. The second volume ran another 20 issues. Sort of funny that they were both ended by Kieran Gillen, who, you know, such a superstar of comics, it's really funny that he was the issue that got X-Men cancelled twice, but truly we know that it was a restructuring to relaunch with a new number one, not so much a cancellation. We then saw Brian Michael Bendis write 36 issues, bringing the series up to 600 issues of Uncanny X-Men. There was then 19 issues, kind of an odd number there, in the fourth volume, followed by 22 issues in the fifth volume. At the time Hox Pox kicked everything off, we had 641 proper issues of Uncanny X-Men. Legacy did something also kind of similar, where it was that second title, The Adjectiveless X-Men, for the first 113 issues, rebranding as New X-Men, with issue 114 for the Grant Morrison run. Grant Morrison would leave the project at 154. However, it would retain its New X-Men numbering until issue 156. Issue 157 saw the addition of Chuck Austin to the title and the dropping of the adjective for New. So that's sort of how we wound up with so many weird books with weird names running in weird places. So the other important thing to remember is that X-Men Legacy did jump out of that title. X-Men resumed with 157, as we mentioned, and ran to 207, and then at 208, the title was renamed X-Men Legacy, running till 275 under the pens of Mike Carey and Christos Gage. Following that, Cy Spurrier, who recently started Way of X, took over X-Men Legacy with a new number one. However, when that series ended after 24 issues, they released X-Men Legacy 300. So there's a history of these X-Men titles as well, and then of course there were more X-Men books called just X-Men between then and now. So one of the big key elements that the X-Men have always relied on are getting people excited for these new number ones, and then it's sometimes being a little confusing to figure out where they're supposed to jump in. So one of the things we're going to seek to do in the next couple of months here at X's for Podcast is we're going to try our best to make those runs clear and easy to follow with some new posts on our website about the easiest ways to collect them, whether it might be an omnibus or trade form. Something that I see a lot is even our own team gets a little confused by what run has what where, and I actually purposely kept a bit of that in in today's episode while editing. It's not unreasonable for people to have trouble with numbers and titles, especially when the X-Men has run for so long and has so much to it. To make sure you're getting all of that awesome new content, follow us on Twitter, Patreon, and YouTube at X's for Podcast. And if you like what you hear, please feel free to drop a review and subscribe over on Apple Podcasts. Now in this next segment, Josh Arturo, Drew, and Evelyn take a look at X-Force number 19, the development of Quentin Quire and Jean Grey, as well as the Cuckoos, and just what it means to have followed this team since Riot at Xavier's through to now.
We hope you guys enjoy. Welcome back to another segment of X is for Podcast. This week we're talking about X-Force 19 with no legacy number. Why no legacy number? Written by the sexy lumberjack himself, Benjamin Percy. Art by Gary Brown. Colors by Guru FX. And letters by VC's Joe Caramagna. Phoebe reaches out to her auntie-in-law for help and the non-problematic X-Force members rally around Quentin to help him literally kill his dark side. With me today is our Arturo, Arturo, say hey and tell us where we can find you. Hey, I'm Arturo. You can find me at Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram. And we're joined by Drew. Hey, I'm Drew. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Drewcifer3. That's at D-R-E-W-S-I-P-H-E-R-3. And we also have Evelyn. Hi, I'm Evelyn, the Comic Canary. You can find me at Comic underscore Canary on Twitter and Instagram. And of course, we always have... I'm Josh Wheel. And you can find me at Asleep at the Wheel, W-E-I-L, on Twitter and at AsleepTheWheel.com. And for the next two years as the progressive Democrat running for U.S. Senate in the state of Florida, you can find me across social media at Wheel, the number four U.S. Senate, and at JoshWheel.org. So X-Force 19 opens with Gene and Scott asleep in the orgy house on the moon, awoken by Phoebe's desperate calls to auntie-in-law. And there's so much to love about the peripheral imagery on this this first page. I know Evelyn has some thoughts on this. I am obsessed with Cyclops sleep mask. Like, I don't know why I didn't think of this before, but it's perfectly brilliant. It's there in case he accidentally wakes up and like, you know, shoots through the moon base and like falls into outer space and the whole orgy house dies. But like, it's lacy and it's just adorable. I love how this particular just single panel is drawn. Everything is beautiful about it. And I'm just, I'm obsessed. I like, I literally like screenshot this and I'm like very seriously considering like making it a wallpaper on my phone because I just, I just love it. (laughs) I'm throwing a flag on the play. As much as I love the mask, I gotta call you guys out for calling this the orgy house because yes, in my head canon, absolutely the orgy house. What we're seeing on panel is the opposite of domestic bliss. It's kind of like day 408 of quarantine. It kind of looks like. It does. It has a little bit of like a barracks jail cell feel. There are not, there's not as much like lacy curtains and like banisters with hooks for them to like attach the chains and stuff to that I would have expected. I feel like that's just Scott. But no, I'm going to be, yeah, let's not pretend that Scott has any say in the design or construction of anything in the moon house. Okay. Like that's that's fair. Just yeah. first off, that's not the but sub job. I, I want to give credit to Gary Brown here because I'm going to be critical of a lot of Gary Brown things uh, on future pages of this issue. But the Cyclops Ruby Lace Sleep Mask um, is a gauntlet that he threw down on every artist who has ever drawn Scott Summer sleeping in the past 60 years, um, and he has just called them out for being wrong in the way that they did it. Because because not only was this so good, but it made every previous image we saw of him sleeping just just wrong. Because this is how it should have been all along. Exactly. And I want to throw in the letterer. Because that little, like, like I feel like... Joe Caramagna. Little lettering. Like, 
like perfectly like accented the artwork so I just wanted to bring that in too because I just I love it just this just this whole single panel like just everything and then like sleepy jean in the background too like it just it, it ugh, I'm obsessed there's there's a ton of great lettering through this issue on mm-hmm. top of the imagery especially around um the psychic weaponry um that Quentin and Phoebe make uh Joe Caramagna I mean the, the VC crew in general there's a reason why they're used on all of this they do uh, a consistently great job weekly. oh for sure uh, but in in issues like this where we have you know a lot more open space and panel bleed um because we're in you know a, a non-corporeal realm um to have the artistic style and the lettering that really accents and improves and and works well with that um they did a great job mm-hmm. now phoebe calls out to gene which i personally love and and, and i, I want to say here that i think this is one of ben percy's best written issues of x-force that we've gotten through the first 19 i'm not sure that this is the best issue as a complete issue because i do have problems with about half the pages of art in here i think gary brown does a phenomenal job on all of our psychic body horror stuff i think he was a, a great choice for that but the quieter moments the human stuff the just the the faces in general there's something that really takes me out of it um in the way he draws uh quentin and gene's faces in particular um that i had wished really wished we had gotten and i wish for kasara on everything i love josh kasara so much but yeah um, and kasara kasara is for a different style on those faces kasara is definitely like on a whole other level but i will and i i agree with with some of the you know the critiques you've you've made about the the art here there it's it's not perfect but i will say this he does do a decent job of fitting into Josh Kassara's like kind of gnarly gritty style. Um, I think Guru FX does a, a bang up job with the colors and it, it's, it's a departure from Kassara's art, but it still feels like an X-Force book. It doesn't feel it like does. I'm on a different planet. Like, oh, no, no, no. It very much does. And and the body horror pages and the psychic... What, Gary Brown really shines when he gets to be more fluid. Um, when, when it gets to be much more kind of open and non-linear, all of the psychic and the horror stuff. Um, it's, it's with the faces in particular where there's a lot of... I mean, in a way, it reminds me of the... You know, another artist who has had really great stretches, but the worst years of Marcus... Uh, um, <laughs> that page, oh my god, Arturo showing us a page that I was going nuts yeah, about last was, night online. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the there is, there the is an teeth. image in there is see I'm hold on I'm missing up it's not Marcus Stroman Marcus Stroman is a Mets pitcher Larry Stroman Larry Stroman yeah I kept wanting to say Marcus Stroman the worst years of Marcus Stroman art he's a Mets pitcher he got his ass kicked last night <laughs> he did. there's 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 something about um, the faces here that are reminiscent of the worst year of Larry Stroman art Larry Stroman another great artist who has done tons of great work but had a stretch there where it was like he forgot what human beings look like um, and we have these really disproportionate faces. Jean has this really long forehead in some of them where her yellow Marvel Girl mask is like three times as tall as the rest of her face. There's a, a Quentin Choir one where he's half chin and has these giant buck teeth. 
And it's it's not just that, like, it's maybe an unflattering look of the character, but that it's often disproportionate enough that it, it takes me out of the story. It makes me critical or off, like, like what? Like, it can't take me out of the story, okay? It doesn't have to be exactly how I think they should look issue to issue, artist to artist. But if it's taking me out of the story in a negative way from time to time, then, I mean, that's something that has to be addressed. I would like to say, well, I do completely agree with you. There are some times where that... It's all it's an it's an aesthetic choice. And there's some panels where that completely works. Um, I'm on digital and I don't know what page this is, but the page where it's a lot of purples where Quentin is running from his like dark self and he like turns a weapon into a snake, that panel like that page. Um, I felt like the aesthetic really worked because it shows this like mental stuff that he's going through. And yes, I do agree with all of the stuff about um Gene. Like it just it didn't work. However, some of the stuff did in a, a little bit. And in particular, and I, I want to jump in here too because it is a gene thing. It's not like I'm saying every human looks yeah, this it's, way. Yeah, it's or, very much a gene. She's she's got when that. When Domino head. comes in, Domino comes in. Yeah, Dom- Gene has a five head, and Domino comes in and looks completely normal. Domino comes in and looks the way I would have expected her to look, and 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 then it makes me stop again and go like, wait, 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 like Gary, Gary Brown, like wait, wait, wait. my man, you had this in you all along what, what was going on the last 15 pages so before we get to domino entering the scene i want to take it back to when uh quentin is in this infinite lab and he's like in his mind but it it feels like he's in a physical space um because it's in his mind as i'm as i'm saying this i'm like well maybe this these are just representations of what he's fearing but it was interesting to me that as he's running you see other mutant parts in these like test tubes and it's again i don't know if that's just like a psychic manifestation of like quentin's fears or if that speaks to every i loved this imagery this is part of the the good half of the art that i really like i loved what he did here they've got nightcrawler's tail beast's hand easter eggs cyclops's head yeah and they made it clear that these were easter eggs when they went back and had him um with the formaldehyde and use that he saw there the type a plug because those things were all hidden like a magic ipub book or something like they were all hidden in there for you to find and then there was a lot more hidden as well um, speaking of also hidden. he did a great also he did a great job of matching this up to earlier issues because this is this is a place that was drawn by kasara in the first arc of x-force where domino was there and and it it matched perfectly you know we, we had a lot of criticisms about bogdanovich over on wolverine that you know he was drawing places that we saw in other books and they didn't look like the places did in other books because he wasn't reading the other books like clearly Gary Brown did a good job of matching this up so that way we visually know exactly where we are when Quentin goes there. Well, and as is pointed out in the white page, and I'll quote, painters like poets have always snuck things into their work. So that's kind of an interesting little thing. There there may be... Um... You know, some some very intentional Easter eggs there. Oh, definitely, definitely. And and speaking of the white page, and I you, let me excuse me while I wheel out my Colossus soapbox. I feel like I'm the only person. I was left also that going to mention. What's the defective? It's funny because it, at the beginning of the issue, I you know you see the cast uh, in the, in that white page of like who's going to be in this issue, and I noticed I'm like okay another day without Colossus, but then he kind of pops up in that white. page. 
page. And it makes me happy to think that Colossus, while he's not on the pages of X-Force, is, you know, chasing his bliss, making art, living his best life, probably listening to, you know, Billie Eilish and just being very moody. Can I tell you how happy I was that this was an X-Force issue that had no Colossus, no Beast, and no Wolverine? Yes. Um, like this, this team crew here, the Gene, Domino, Quentin, Phoebe, and Sage on the background, lo- love, love, love this. Like this was the group. Yeah. The, all the beast problematic stuff, all of the oversaturation of Wolverine, Colossus, who, you know, I'm on record as saying that, you know, his mutant power is that he's the saddest boy on earth and, uh, organic steel is his secondary mutation. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with him taking a break. Um, he can stay on his farm painting in the morning when the light's just right um actually i watched at eternity's gate the uh vincent van gogh film with uh willem dafoe from a couple of years ago the other day and uh really reminded me of that the way he was describing the painting that like very poetic and nice on percy's part there our sexy lumberjack has has some beauty inside him i'm just um, i'm just yeah, hungry I'm, I'm, for somebody to eventually do something with colossus and mm-hmm. it that white page made me happy because it makes me feel like percy called colossus Colossus when when in the early days of you know uh the the dawn of x and colossus jumped on this team but we haven't seen a lot of him and this just reassures me that percy hasn't forgotten him there will be something and it will come eventually so it's almost as yeah, he, he's giving permission to other writers to to have a story with him he went on this oh. huge twitter rant when this issue came out to all saying that like um i know we like we've had like a lot of um issues with kind of the pacing of like this series so far um and he was saying kind of that he's been like it was uh like uh what's the word i'm looking for like he, he intentionally made it this way because before it was always like a six issue six issue six issue six issue and now he's and he kind of took that uh i guess complaint and tried to change it up with the way that he that he told this story overall so like it is intentional like kind of changing ironically i think this is the longest story arc the quentin story arc here i think is the longest one he's he's <laughs> told in terms of following a single beat through multiple issues um, without breaking off yeah no, well the uh, real like, this this is starting to feel like the quentin choir solo title but this is well paced like this is also like this is unveiling itself like th- because like this needs to be a couple issues away from like phoebe taking him to jumbo carnation a lot of stuff has gone down in the mm-hmm. in between and it's it's paced itself nicely and i want to go back one of the first things i said was you know i i think this is probably percy's best written issue that we've gotten of the 19 and I love so many of the touchbacks in here. So many of the of the things he built on, not just from his own earlier X Force, not just from you know relationships across Hawkspock, but like there is so much of this story that pulls back on Grant Morrison's New X Men One Thirty Nine. Yes, let's um, go to the dreamscape. There is a lot of this story that pulls back on Bendis's all new X Men. You know the the fact that Phoebe calls out to Jean right is important because we have Phoebe Cuckoo was the one during Bendis's run the first one to really break away from Emma and be like no I don't hate Jean just because mom does and she's the one who dyed her hair red and was like you know what I like this teen 
Jean and I want to be her friend and I want to be more like her. She has an affinity towards Jean more than the other cuckoos. And it makes sense that she would call out to her for help. And then, you know, you get the fact that Jean was there for Riot at Xavier's, right? And, you know, the history, even though Jean was off the board for so much of our Quentin time, the fact that Quentin had the Phoenix, the fact that Quentin was part of Phoenix Resurrection and interacted with Teen Jean, you have this great connection with them there where Jean really kind of knows him from like a, a maternal teacher sense and is seeing the growth in him in this um, and that they they really relate over the fears of your dark side you know who can relate to you know how powerful or damaging your dark side is that Quentin's going through right now more than Jean Grey the character his girlfriend is going to naturally turn to for help because of what was built up during the Bendis run like Percy pulled on so much from these characters to really tie them together and build the the interpersonal relationships and dynamics in this story just so expertly. Um, and I think it's something that will just read for like a newcomer to X-Men, will just read normal and nice, but for like the deep dive fan pays off and has so much more to it. I don't know if I've gone on record with this or not, but I've never been the biggest Jean fan. It's not like I don't like her, I like her. She's just never been my favorite. But something that I love 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 in this um issue is that she does take that maternal um mentor type role and i really like seeing her in that role because she has gone through so much and seeing her in this role is just making me like her so much and I can't say this enough about the dawn and reign of X. It's like, it's making characters I never really cared about making me really like them. Like Quentin in this entire issue, like I, I like I have gone record being like, I was always neutral towards him, but this is making me really, really like him. And then Phoebe, I think I've gone on record saying she's my favorite cuckoo and I love the cuckoos period. But like, I always liked her because of her independence and able to break out while still loving her sisters, but still having her own thing and just everything thing I love about these three characters coming into this issue again I agree Percy did just such a fantastic job where they like they should have asked Jean it's just like look we need help please teach us and Jean even acknowledges it's like you guys have matured so much that I will teach you because I don't think you will abuse this and that was just such a great moment for me I love I love that it was framed phrased as that's what I want you to teach us how to do tighten our minds into fists because like Jean Grey is a very complex character. Jean is a lot of different things. And one of those things is Jean Grey is a bully. Jean Grey knows how to scrap in the schoolyard when she has to. Oh, let's go back to New X-Men 139. New X-Men 139 is the clearest example of Jean Grey as Sledgehammer. Yes. Um, you know, Leah Williams gave the best description of her versus Emma. She said, you know, Emma's a scalpel and Jean's a sledgehammer. Which is and the best, like that is the best description of both of them like it, i use it all the time now it's so good. it is it's great and yeah. if you compare because there's these two really great stories i love obviously everyone everyone loves new x-men 139 um but then there's a, a similar kind of mirror issue in x-men legacy 214 and 250 and 139 where, wait 139 just for listeners just if you're following along or whatever uh is when jean gray discovers cyclops and emma frost's psychic affair which is brought up explicitly in this issue in a yeah. way that was 
really rewarding to the readers. And also, um, just for the record, if uh, in, I think it's 138, the issue before, um, you know, the way she found them was the cuckoos. The cuckoos were the one who knew what was going on. And Jean was wandering around the mansion like, hey, have you seen Scott? And they're like, um, don't look over there. <laughs> um, so, yeah, th- th- there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff there. But in addition to that issue, X-Men Legacy 214 and 215 by uh, Mike Harry have a similar one where Xavier had just come off of having Sinister all up in his mind and Scott and Emma are running the X-Men and they don't trust him and as no one should because he's Xavier and so they kind of lure him out into the woods and Emma does to Xavier it's it's a mirror issue she goes in takes over his mind and drags him through his history the exact same way Jean does to Emma in New X-Men 139 and it's the exact same thing but it's also like when Emma does it it's done to be with precision it's not just wrecking ball steamroller like slamming you through like the worst hits of your life it's very it's more like a film it's done more like a film being spliced together um which really helped to kind of mirror that earlier issue and highlight the differences between Jean and Emma um and so yeah like no one knows how to tighten your mind into a fist like Jean Grey does Going back to more into Jean, another thing that I kind of find very interesting is going back to like the correlation between um, Cable and Quentin. And it's funny because in Cable, it's literally like like people are saying, why don't you just ask Jean for help? And he's like, no, 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 no. I want to do it by myself. And this is Quentin getting Jean to help. You know what I mean? Like this is kind of like the mirrored situation of what might happen with Cable if he was to get Jean to help. And it's also a great match because you have Cable who doesn't want to go to his mom for help. So he goes to Emma. And then you have Phoebe who probably doesn't want to go to her mom for help. So she goes to... It's great. Which is exactly how young... I mean, I shouldn't even say young people. Like, like I'm 37, and if you give me the option of, like, going to my mom or someone else's mom for help, like, I'm still probably going to call someone else's mom first. But, like, it's a very human thing. Um, And also, every time that happens, it makes me go back and realize how right Arturo is about his theory of who Kid Cable actually is. Oh, you guys. Yeah, we. it's, it's hard for me not to go off on that tangent, but that's cooking. <laughs> That's cooking. We'll see. Stay tuned. You say Kid Cable, but I think it's Kid Strife. I do agree with that from what we've seen. I also agree. Quick apology. My mess up. New X, uh, X-Men Legacy 215 and 216. Walkthrough by Mike Carey. When they go into this mindscape and they see this deceased Quentin, this dead grotesque Quentin. It's very, I thought it was very interesting because it does look a lot like that monster and so it makes me wonder if what's happening with like whoever this villain is is using his own psychics to mess with other psychics. We still don't know why he's targeting Kid Omega but it was definitely very interesting and again just the fact that they were able to um figure it out where quentin was actually like you know clever being like oh while i was in there i noticed that this plug that's only there for a couple things and that this mindscape is obviously being made from other things which we were talking about those easter eggs where that's probably where they're coming from and just phoebe caring about quentin so much and trying to help him is 
I ship them so hard Same. now. I did not see this coming. By right. the end of this issue, I love them so much. Yeah, and this is something that I don't like. If our listeners know about the cuckoos, this is not a typical thing for the Stepford cuckoos to care this much about someone, especially Kid Omega, who's you know a jackass a lot of the time. They were They're they were shit talking him other anymore. Better people. I want to bring this back to what Drew said, too, about comparing it to uh, Sophie and Kid Cable, because we just got a, ca- uh, a Kid Cable issue. A cable Esme issue. and Kid Cable. Is it Esme with it Kid Esme, Cable? Yeah. Oh, no. Sophie was the one that Quentin... Sophie's who Quentin loved back and died back in Ride the right. yes. Esme. Esme and Kid Cable. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. Brings us... And Esme has a thing for bad boys, which is why she's dating Kid Strife. <laughs> brings us back to what he was saying about Esme and Kid Cable in that last issue or the parallels to Cable in the last Kid Cable Cable issue but remember they were on the boat together with Scott and Emma and then Kid Cable jumped off and swam away and you know Emma brings up that harsh line of you know the boy would rather swim across the o- you know jump into the ocean than be with you <laughs> and here we get the opposite here we get Quentin and what I think is probably like the definitive turning point in his character growth is there's a fantastic panel where they're trying to unlock the door the 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 mine doors in the hallway and everything turns sideways and they're hanging there and he just like breaks he's just like please and you just get this pure kind of no bullshit from a character who historically is all bullshit you get please don't let go i need you and that just kind of like honest opening wholehearted humility like declaration of his like just telling her please don't let go I need you I think is like the turning point in him and and the exact opposite of Kid Cable like sneaking off the boat and swimming away while you know Esme was drying, drying off I think it's so beautiful I th- and, and like Percy's done such a good job of building it slowly throughout this whole arc it's not like this this little love affair has happened overnight but it just it just hits right you know and there's something about um Esme and Phoebe, you know, taking these kind of messy boyfriends and uh, and just caring for them in a way that kind of echoes the best parts of Emma being with Scott. Um, I will always ship Scamma. And if he, there's something about that, you know, that it, it just kind of feels like, yeah, he's not perfect. Yeah, he's a mess, but he's my mess. That feels very Frostian. Going back to, you know, how great Percy's writing in this issue was, you know, Jean's lesson in the dreamscape, teaching them about, you know, thinking of it as a hallway, giving it shape, making it real. Um, you know, what we see with the dynamic between Quentin and Phoebe as they go through this. Um, the Domino joining with Jean to go back into um, into Domino's own personal house of horrors. Quentin literally having to put down his dark side, kill it. And a lot like what Arturo just said, that this is earned. Like the character growth in this is earned because we're on the fourth issue of this arc. And these are things that we would not have bought on issue 16. These are things that we would not have bought at the beginning of this. We had to get here. Um, and, um, and so just a, a fantastic job on Percy. 
Um, and I love to see where this goes and how this team grows moving forward. And we know that Gene's going to be in Dugan's X-Men title, uh, Duggan's X-Men title. Um, Domino does not seem to be appearing anywhere else. Uh, the Phoebe, uh, the Phoebes, the Cuckoos and how they're going to be split up or where we continue to see them. You know, we don't necessarily know what's going to happen with them. Beast is definitely one of the top money contenders for someone who's going to be featured heavily in the trial. This is a book, you know, and if you've been following the pages of sword and you know what it means to be black ops or kill things and and to take a life that is you know impermanent this is a book that could see some changes in the coming months but based on what we saw here tons and tons of promise as far as i'm concerned i got one gripe i want to get off my chest about the art you know i know jeans green mini skirt dress is not a you know not loved by everyone across the board i think it's cool most most of the time, but I do want to point out if you are going to Greenland and it's snowing, maybe put on your leotard, maybe change to a different outfit. Because seeing Gene standing in the snow in a skirt, really, I was like, "Come on, for yeah. real, guys!" I'm gonna be like, honest. She's got seven other outfits she could have worn for this. So three X books came out this week, right? We had uh, Sword Number Five, Way of X Number One, and X Force Nineteen. And I don't remember which of the other two it was, but when I turned a page and saw. Jean Grey in her um, 90s uh, gold and blue X-Men uniform. I got a little wet. It's it's my favorite costume of hers, but like even her X Factor bodysuit would have been a better choice. Hell, throw on your 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 Phoenix greens if you want. Whatever, girl, you're going to Greenland. Like something different than a skirt to go in the snow. So that took me out. Uh, I, I do want to just point out the one person whose face I had no problems with was Domino. For some reason, I, I like the Domino art. I thought was was dope. One thing that I kind of want to see next going into like after the gala. Um, when this book started, it was kind of like the one of the books where you were getting more of that uh, like development the of lore. Krakoa and stuff and the lore. Um, and it's kind of a little bit gotten away from that. Um, so I would like to see it get a little bit more lore to it, even if it is kind of on like that CIA kind of side to it. I love that. I wonder how much of that is editorial, though, because I feel like they're very meticulous about when and how much they give us those lore builds and we've definitely seen it we saw it as being a bigger part of way of x this week we've seen it in x factor as a huge lore book um and so i'm wondering you know maybe if percy's lost the it's not his turn anymore if that's part of it um yeah I, of, I hope he does I, oh, I i loved that early on a lot of the lore comes from like the early issues like all the like number like the first arcs essentially and then kind of goes into its own story but like my kind of thing is why can't we do both you know i agree i love it i i i, I love when we get those because this is such a great world that they built to play in that anytime the story adds to the world building um and the rules of that world it's like that's a big turned on for me in the book i like i like that you pointed out josh that it does definitely feel like there's big changes on the horizon like we all know at the hellfire gala um they're going to announce the new x-men team and Obviously, with Polaris leaving X Factor, with Jean Grey and Scott uh, leaving the Quiet Council, and Jean leaving X Force, like there is going to be a little bit of a shakeup. So I'm I'm really eager to see what that translates into with X Force because one of my one of my problems, I guess, with this title, not problems, but just something I would like to see more of is just some more characters on the team because it feels like if we have this 
you know, quote unquote CIA uh, organization for for Krakoa, it just feels like we could have a little more supporting cast, um, a little more uh, specialist or guest you know, agents, you can have somebody that's like a reserve X-Force member that gets pulled in for different missions. Oh, absolutely. So I'd like to see that. Sword has so much in that kind of aspect. It has like a whole team and it made up like the mutant technology and that. And I th- I feel like X-Force could do something similar with how big yeah. it is. That's a great point. Sword has such a deep roster because they have so many alternates clearly laid out and people who can come in and play a role. And X-Force really should have that too. Nathan and I have brought up a number of times that, you know, we feel that Dazzler is a perfect character for Black Ops uh, because she turns light sound into light. Like, if you're trying to stealthily sneak somewhere, she can absorb all the sound and have you creeping in silence um, anywhere you go. Like, that's a perfect... She's a perfect fit. Put Dazzler on X-Force. That's what I'm saying. Put her on now. Well, I think I, I think before we fill the, the Dazzler slot, we need to get another telepath here. Um, I mean, I guess we, we have Quentin, so that's good. But, like, if Jean's gone, if... Emma's, you know, busy with the Marauders and her Emma business, then, you know, we, we, we could, we have a spot here open for somebody. That actually brings me to my final thought that I was going to mention. That's actually a great segue because what I was going to talk about was, um, what I would like to see, I have no idea if it's going to happen, but what I'm kind of like predicting is that there's this line in this issue where, um, when they're grabbing Jean, Quentin kind of says, Beast is dead. So you're, even though you're out of the X-Force, you're the de facto leader. Now, I don't think that that means that Jean is going to be c- coming back and being the de facto leader. What I think is going to happen is with Quentin's maturity and learning all of this, with Jean being his mentor, he could potentially become this great leader and become the leader of the X-Force because he's maturing so much, because he has Jean as a mentor. And that's what I would like to see. Like, I, again, I was so neutral towards this character and now I stand him so hard. <laughs> that would be wild. I don't want to see him as a leader, but I agree with you that he has been massively redeemed. He's he's well, learning to become a leader, like further yeah. down the line, like not like next issue or anything, but like maybe in like five, ten issues, I can see that happening if he continues to mature the way he is. I love I love the trajectory of Quentin Quire because he was introduced as a character that you know we we should keep an eye on him because he would definitely be a formidable villain and he's got all the you know all the ingredients there to, to turn bad uh so there's like a part of you that always kind of expected him to possibly go bad and it's cool to see him finding his his uh his better angels and and resisting his darkness like i i buy that quentin choir is an x-men and a hero and that's pretty cool Hey everybody, welcome back. Nico here again, and like I mentioned last segment, one of the things we're looking to do is answer reader and listener questions going forward. Something we've heard a lot has to do with the confusion when it comes to collecting these omnibus editions. While it should seem straightforward, so many of them are labeled Volume 1. So we're here to make things a little bit easier for you guys. I want to start things off by explaining that, yeah, there are a lot of Volume 1s, but it's sort of the way the trade numbering restarts. It's meant to be a series with some continuity to it. Now, they get a little bit less, it's just called X-Men, and how do you read it? 
as they go on as the omnibus line has grown and grown. To start things off, that original 66 issues is collected in two rather out-of-print omnibus editions. The first one sees issues 1 to 31, while the second volume sees issues 32 to 66, plus a handful of bonuses. For readers who might not realize, the series actually ended properly at number 66 and began a run of reprints from issues 67 to 93, so there's no real content to be collected from issue 67 to 93. The title was kicked back off with Giant Size X-Men in 1975, followed by X-Men 94 through the annals of time and the big success that it's become. Now, that Chris Claremont relaunch era around giant size X-Men has been collected across a number of omnibus editions. In the first one, you can get pretty much giant size X-Men 94 to 131. That stops you kind of halfway through the Dark Phoenix saga. Uncanny X-Men volume number two contains 132 to 153, which is a host of legendary stories, including the famous Uncanny X-Men 150 in The Great Battle vs. Magneto, and Days of Future Past. Volume 3 saw 154 to 175. That volume also has God Loves Man Kills, Wolverine 1 through 4, and Magic 1 through 4. So that volume contains a number of the core miniseries that I know a lot of readers look for. That Wolverine volume is the volume that features Frank Miller, and that Magic volume is the one that tells her story of gaining the Soul Sword and her time growing in Limbo. Now, the most recently released volume, just two months ago, is Uncanny X-Men volume number four, featuring issues 176 to 193. This also includes Kitty Pride and Wolverine 1 through 6, which is the famous Ogun story, as well as X-Men and Alpha Flight number 1 through 2, which is the sort of Asgardian magic Madeline Pryor gets powers and no one knows what to do with that story. It's a great story. I love it. Don't get me wrong. Going forward, a number of the other volumes get a little bit more difficult to discuss, so we're going to be breaking those down in other segments. I did also want to mention, for those of you who are interested in more of this era in particular, X-Men Classic was a series of reprints used to make the material from the mid to late 70s more readily available for a market that did not support trades yet. So you would see reprints of those issues once a month, in X-Men Classic or Classic X-Men, depending on what it was named at the time. They also included updates to those scripts, corrected art, and backup stories for a number of years. That was all collected in the X-Men Classic Omnibus, which sort of rounds out that era. Later on, we're going to talk about the crossover editions and the spin-off series Omnibuy. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't mention one more omnibus edition that I know a number of our contributors have been looking forward to for a long time. Captain Britain entered Comics Limbo, not the Ileana Limbo, the non-published Limbo, shortly after his time in the Otherworld saga featuring the Black Knight, which is something not only have we covered extensively on this show in great detail, but we now cover the Black Knight's current miniseries. The Captain Britain Omnibus by Alan Moore, Alan Davis, Jamie Delano, and Chris Claremont initially saw the publication of Marvel Superheroes UK 377 to 388, Daredevils 1 to 11, Captain America 305 to 306, The Mighty World of Marvel 7 to 16, Captain Britain 1 through 14, and this was actually the first publication of a lot of that material in the United States. There were two additional hardcovers that truly contained every other appearance he had ever made in the UK, and those were Captain Britain, 
Birth of a Legend, and Captain Britain's Siege of Camelot. These three volumes have been out of print for some time, and Marvel has heard the call from X-Fans and Captain Britain fans alike, and they are reprinting the Captain Britain Alan Moore Davis Delano Claremont Omnibus, but they're reprinting it as the Captain Britain Expanded Omnibus, and it's actually going to contain, essentially, the contents of all three hardcovers. This is going to be a very exciting opportunity for fans of the current run of Excalibur to get to read not just the origins of Captain Britain and the core, but things like Psylocke's first appearance, as she did make her first appearance in the pages of Marvel UK. And this is just a really cool time to be collecting these Omnibi, and I can't wait to talk a little bit more about it next time. However, I'm going to turn things over to Nathan, the guy who very much has been looking forward to that Captain Britain omnibus for quite a while. Hey everyone, it's Nathan, and today, Maddie, Kyle, and I are talking about The Mighty Valkyries Number 1. This amazing new miniseries is brought to us by Jason Aaron and Jerome Grunbeck, and is fresh off the trail of their previous miniseries, The Return of the Valkyries, in which we are introduced to the new mysterious Valkyrie. In this issue, we get a name for her, Runa, and it is perfect. Listen to us as we gush about the art in this amazing issue, the amazing human moments between Doctor Strange and Jane Foster, and Ponder, can Loki really be a trickster god if he's not really tricking anyone? Welcome, everybody. I'm Nathan. You can find me online at Dazzler AOA, and we are covering today the Mighty Valkyries. I'm Kyle. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Twitch at Drantis82, D R A N T I S 82. And I'm Maddie, and you can find me always on Instagram at The Basely Covetous Man and over on Twitter at Basely Covetous. With the Mighty Valkyries, there are two stories, and there's two sets of creative teams on each of these stories. For the Jane story, we have writers Jason Aaron and Teron Gronbeck. Mattia de Elise is the artist. And on the new Valkyrie story, the writer is Teron Grunbeck. Uh, artist is Erica Durso. The colorist is Marcio Minis. Letterer and production is VCs Joe Savino. The Mighty Valkyries continues much of the same type of storytelling that was set out in The Return of the Valkyries, where we have our two main heroes in two different sets of stories, and I'm sure they're going to bridge over in the end. With writer Jason Aaron and Teron Grunbeck, handling the Jane piece, and Tarun Grunbeck handling the new Valkyrie piece. And we finally get a name for her, Runa. Do you guys think the wait to get her name was worth the name that we got? I want to take a step back for a moment and answer this in a roundabout sense. I feel like the wait to get her name had sort of extended beyond what I was willing to deem acceptable as a wait. I feel like part of me was expecting Return of the Valkyries to end on, her name is Runa. You know what I mean? And that put a nice bow on things, but I understand wanting to have had the ability to leave the door open to have a, a small mystery to go into the Mighty Valkyries with. So was it worth it, though, for the quality of the name? Yeah, Rune is a, Rune is a solid name. Yeah, I love Runa. I loved the process that she had to go through in order to relearn her name. I thought it was a pretty epic way of handling it. But yeah, a part of me feels like with all the time that was spent not knowing her name in Return of the Valkyries, to have it revealed in the first issue here was kind of fast. 
It was kind of setting it up for a mystery, like, rogue's name. Mm. How long was she in publication before we actually figured out her real name? And then when we actually get her name, you're like, oh, it's Anna Marie. <laughs> no, I, I think it was, like you said, Maddie, too, it was nice to have that little bit of mystery. But also, I agree, maybe it could have been drawn out a little bit. I thought the art was absolutely stunning in this issue, especially for the Jane story. Having the two separate art teams on this book, do we really think that helped differentiate the stories. I definitely had that moment of dissonance between stories. I love our creative teams. I respect our creatives, but I do find that I tend to pay the least amount of attention to the title page of a story. For the most part, I read all of Return of the Valkyries. I covered a lot of Return of the Valkyries with the two of you. Actually, I believe the last episode was. So, you know, in that regard, I, I tend to gloss over the title page and I only come back to it when I'm, you know, digesting the the creative team for the sake of recording and for the sake of the show. But I had no idea that this was two separate stories. I simply, I simply would have known from reading the blurb, but I didn't. And so there was a moment of transition where I was like, okay, the art has gotten pretty considerably different. I'm still just going to roll with it. I would be really hard-pressed between Erica de Urso and Mattia de Elis to say whose art was objectively better because art is so subjective. I will say I was actually floored at several panels of Elise's work, specifically the the warmth in. I'm so curious now to know who the colorist is. Um, I have to I have to assume because it wasn't listed that it was full production by Mattia de Elise, or perhaps I don't understand the process of art as it changes hands. But wow, I'm just looking at the incredible realism. I imagine we all had to have been you know, quick favorites in this issue. I also shamefully don't often pay attention to the title page. So I didn't realize that there were two different artists on the book. I just assumed that the change in style was due to Runa being on a different planet. That was just a way of them saying, this is how we're presenting this planet. The level of detail in the Jane story, the way that lights and shadows are utilized, it was absolutely beautiful. I'm so glad that we got to the art so quickly because it was my takeaway. And I think in the, in our last recording, of Return of the Valkyries, I kind of admitted in the green room that as somebody who is not a big Thor reader, is not particularly familiar with these characters on a name basis, aside from Jane Foster, and for somebody who kind of his brain shuts down when I read specific like Valkyrie and Thor stylized text... Valkyrie stories, I was not expecting to be for me. I was quickly endeared to Return of the Valkyries. I was super excited to cover Mighty Valkyries. I will say I did not expect for a moment either set of art to look like this. And I'm, I'm struggling to, to find an apt comparison for the work done by Mattia de Elis. But I think what jumped out at me immediately about Erica de Urso's work on the latter half of the book was that it was so reminiscent um, both in style and also in the content of Fiona Staples' work on Saga. Oh, okay, very yeah. oh, yes, very similar line work, even down to the colorists involved in both books. Very similar palettes. The creation of this warmth and life and surreal aspect of an alien foreign planet. Just definitely the parallels were right there. And then to see that the actual aesthetic of the work was the same. I would read either of these artists as a mainstay on this book. 
I will admittedly say, I don't know how long Mattia de Elise's process takes, but I can only imagine it is <laughs> longer than I can comfortably do anything in my life for that level of realism. Oh, absolutely. The amount of effort in, in pencil work, and, and I'm assuming they did the colors too, which just blew everything away. The page where you've got light hitting Jane's armor and just the way that the colors reflect off that, this had to take a long time to do. Life is returned to what passes for normal for Jane, and we see her back in the hospital with a Doctor Strange appearance. So I, I gotta ask, what is you guys' overall impression or opinion of Doctor Strange? Did his appearance in this book change any of those preconceptions that you had of him? Personally, I'll say, I usually can't stand Doctor Strange. I find him really insufferable. There was something, though, about his interaction with Jane really shined to me. I really could find myself connecting with him in a way that I hadn't really connected with him before, and I don't know if it was just the breathtaking art. You know, I think that Jason Aaron really honed in on the human in Stephen Strange's cadence. I think that it was, if nothing else, my takeaway, because I, very much like you, Nathan, typically don't have much of a taste for Doctor Strange. I actually don't have much history reading Strange-centric books, but in most appearances of his, with the one major exception being Empire X-Men, in which his interaction with Wanda, the gold standard by which I hold Stephen Strange interactions— that said, Mighty Valkyries, it was a very human conversation. It was very much a conversation being had with equals. And I feel like there was the implicit aspect of them, you know, not only through the yellow box text, but there was the implicit relationship that they both respect each other in a professional capacity, both in the hospital and in their moonlighting careers as, although of course they've proven themselves to be more than moonlighters. I know I'm like the Sorcerer Supreme just moonlights. Yeah. He's, a, he's a barista by day, but like he, he does like genuflection hands and like makes sparks at night. That's oof. That's a character assassination on Dr. Strange. Um, somebody, somebody save me for myself. So, yeah, I honestly wasn't expecting him to be acting so normal. I was expecting him to be kind of more stuck up like what we've seen in the MCU. I haven't really had a lot of experience with Doctor Strange at all. And really, the only comic-based Doctor Strange that I've read is Strange Academy. And there he really only makes an appearance very rarely. It was nice seeing his and Jane's interaction and and the way that both of them kind of respond to Regina. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I'm not fully caught up on the previous Valkyrie series, but I am aware of Jane's relationship with Regina, and I'm just kind of surprised that it's gone on as long as it has. <laughs> you guys were saying, too, about it being human and just like the conversation itself. Who hasn't had that conversation where they're having a little side conversation and the boss comes up and they're like, oh my god, pretend we're working, pretend we're working. That was so human, especially for Doctor Strange, who is usually a little little bit more pompous and he's condescending it really has to speak to how much he respects jane for what she does not only as a doctor but as the valkyrie as well oh for sure i think that if nothing else that respect was palpable in that exchange which of course always lovely to see and always nice to see from a character who you think 
their their hubris, their more smarmy elements kind of <laughs> brings them to an irredeemable place. <laughs> if smarmy had a picture next to it in the dictionary, it would be Dr. Strange. <laughs> Speaking of other human conversations, the conversation that Jane had with the terminal cancer patient, Wilhelmina Anderson, where she describes her as one of the most fascinating people that she's ever met, that includes some of the gods that she's known. It's really got me wondering, like, what type of stories that she was telling to Jane? Like, the one that we heard was amazing and... Uh, really heartfelt. And I love the idea that she's trading coffee with this lady to get these stories. But it also makes me think of how even though Jane is Valkyrie and also a morgue assistant, how death is just a constant part of her life, how she still is feeling the heaviness of death itself and is still valuing each and every life. Did you guys get the same kind of reaction from that conversation? I did. Yeah. It makes sense for her to be building these relationships with the people around the hospital who are terminal and not just focusing her Valkyrie energies on the fallen warriors who need to go to Valhalla, but making sure that people who are struggling they're not alone yeah i have to agree i definitely think that that was very present in the exchange so uh after a conversation with her boss at the morgue she heads to a morgue workers bar which has the best name the remains of the day holy shit that's so crazily funny to me i don't know why to investigate the attacks by the creature that dr strange mentions in the earlier conversation I have so many questions about why Jane would be a morgue assistant. I can see her wanting to be a doctor, you know, helping to heal people, helping to try to bring people from death's door. And it kind of works hand in hand with her being a Valkyrie because it gives her a power over death that even her Valkyrie abilities don't get. I'm just wondering, like, why would she want to be a morgue assistant at this point? Is she just doing it at this point to pay off her student loans? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, where are you guys with this? Does, oh. it, does, that, does that job make sense for Jane? Okay, so does the job make sense for Jane? No, I don't think so. Does the job make sense for a Valkyrie who needs a living career? Yeah, I think 100%. It took me a minute. I did read a little bit of the blurb on the title page, and then I was like, all right, whatever, whatever. I got on and I saw a morgue attendant and I was like, that makes no sense. And then I read it back again and I was like, that's so on the nose. It's actually painful. A Valkyrie whose job is to escort people from the land of the living to the land of the dead, being the last set of hands to touch a body during that process is so fucking on the nose in a way that I never would have put together for myself. Like if I were Jason Aaron, I never would have been like, yeah, more attendant completely makes perfect sense, but it makes perfect sense. And so do I think that Jane could be doing better things in some capacity? Do I think that she has more to offer in her, her temperament and her, you know, hospitality that she could maybe work more with the terminal ill living for sure. But as a Valkyrie career, a lot of that is tied to the previous Valkyrie series. The reason why she got demoted to morgue attendant was because she kept disappearing on her shift to do superhero work. It does make sense story-wise for her to be there now. I'm just kind of surprised that she hasn't tried to move to a different hospital at this point. Can we be honest? Because I'm going to bring up a comparable work experience of mine for this moment, and then I'm going to bring us back to the bar because, hey, that's what I do for a living. So if you didn't know, I'm a career bartender. And part of that is understanding 
the entirety of the clientele that goes to the remains of the day. But I bring this up because if I got demoted for my job, if I underperformed on a Saturday, I find it very unlikely that I would be demoted to a dishwasher. And that's a little bit like what this feels like. Like clearly, I have no formal college. See career bartender. But I, I don't understand how that is like, that. Is that the pecking order in a hospital? Is that seriously something that would happen? I only wish one of us were a doctor. So they could be like, yeah, mor- morgue attendant is totally just like bitch duty now. Like you, you fucked up, you disappear on your shift. Now you're going to handle the debt. I bring that up because I simply don't understand if that is an appropriate pecking order for a hospital. But I also bring that up because literally one of my favorite bar regulars that I've ever met is a woman by the name of Renee and she's a mortician and she has some really fucked up stories and she always keeps it respectful and she's always very respectful of her clientele and her work. But man, you want to hear some weird fucking shit? Talk to a mortician. If Remains of the Day was a thing, it would be my daily driver bar. It would be my, my, it would be my cheers. I do have to say that this bar does sound like an amazing place to be and their their drink list is quite hysterical so i have to be honest i'm so disappointed there is a really great cocktail that was not a direct pun but it is actually a classic cocktail and it's called the last word and i think if somebody ordered a last word as a mortician at a mortician's only bar i would have like actually wept a little bit because it's also my favorite drink ever. Um, oh. So that's a thing for you to know. I do like there's the embalmer's brew that we get to see and the abracadabra. Like what isn't an abracadabra? An I abracadabra. Like, at the remains of the day, Jane does meet a charming man who she instantly pegs as low-key. After the few-page intro that we got, after the Jimmy Carter story, was anybody surprised that it was Loki? Were you like, oh my god, I had no idea. Did you guys instantly peg him as Loki as well? And I don't know why I said pegging so many times. (laughs) I wouldn't say that I had him pegged as Loki, but I did notice that a lot of his words were getting bolded, so he was obviously saying stuff in code. So I was like, oh, okay, Loki, that totally makes sense. I'd love to say, yeah, no, I figured it out. I didn't figure it out. But if I were to have come close, the moment that I knew that it was somebody nefarious was the very last page of their exchange while they were still inside of the bar. It was the close-up on the eyes. And even before I read the you know thought text by Jane, the oh, damn it, there was something about that that I was like, this is, there's more to this. There has to be more to this because who is, are they going to create a character out of this? This has to be somebody that we know. Loki was the the perfect choice. No, I agree. I'm looking at the page right now and I'm just blown away by this art and this whole thing. <laughs> First off, the look that he gives her is just exactly what her thought is right there. It's like, oh, I love when she says, tell me something. Is this Nordic dreamboat thing you got going on? Just something that you think I'd like? And he's like, oh, shit, how can Loki be a trickster god if everybody can see through him right away? (laughs) So Jane quickly finds out that the creature Strange has pointed her in the direction of is after Loki. And we also find out that it's one of his grandkids. He must have forgotten to send them $20 on the Christmas card is what I'm thinking. But so Loki's an evil piece of shit. So it's probably something like that. It's a quick but beautiful battle where Loki ends up disappearing in the middle of it. And Jane finds out that the villain that they are fighting may be more than what they originally thought. 
What was your take on this battle as a whole? This segment was probably my favorite in the book, just art-wise. Coloring the use of light, that downward gaze of you looking at Jane carrying Loki with the giant wolf below them. That was just absolutely amazing. I'm very intrigued by this new character. I'm going to call them Hottie and Skull. Yes, Hottie and Skull. Yes. <laughs> because they are, it's it's two personalities in one body. I'm very intrigued by him because it's not like he's trying to kill Loki. He just wanted to maim him and make him scared, which Loki probably deserves. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing Loki, I am really looking forward to learning more about him. I am too. Uh, uh, absolutely agreed. If for no other reason than he's so fucking hot. Um, <laughs> I no, he he really look. Come on, you got he got that flowy tunic. He's got a good set of mixed textiles going. He's got that hair, got that smoky eye. I mean, what more do you want from the grandson of Loki? Those abs too. But oh, and those abs, those abs were were, <laughs> were fucking glass cutters. As I rest my arm on my stomach. Oh, those are, <laughs> those are abs. I thought it was some weird... <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I didn't look close enough. I thought it was just a separation between like three different types of fabric. Oh, so just like a, <laughs> like a, like a weird lumpy flesh tone cummerbund? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's just wearing a crop top jacket instead. I mean, as all villains do, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, hello, especially if you're that hot. Like, right. I couldn't pull it. I couldn't pull it off. <laughs> so, to kind of round out the Jane story, there's a brief interlude in Hell. Hella is looking for her wife, Cornilla, who appears to be caring for the souls of the baby who we saw earlier in the issue, who were lost in the womb, and they had their first thoughts being awakened on the journey to Hell. Does this story excite you? Is this something that you are excited to see where this is going? Because this is really fascinating to me personally. And I'm like, wow. Like, I think I'm a Thor person now because of this. <laughs> I am intrigued. I want to know more. I'm not familiar enough with the hell side of things. So I don't really know much about Hela and Carnilla. It kind of seems like they're while they're married they're also opposing forces as some married couples can be i guess yeah i'm more interested in what's going on with these babies because there's three of them so i'm wondering if maybe they are a new version of the fates Ooh. Ooh. but again i i'm not really sure where things stand in the whole asgardian world so that wraps up our jane story and then it brings us to our second tale, which gives our previously unnamed Valkyrie a name, which we talked about earlier, Runa, where she is trying to find an oracle to fulfill an old debt. I really like this planet they're on. It seems like what the writer's version of a extreme version of a reality TV show driven society is maybe what they think that our society could become in a few years has evolved into did you guys get that same read where they trying to parallel some of earth society i did definitely 
had a lot of parallels between our our world and the the whole reality TV type of thing. I found it really fascinating that their oracle was originally just somebody that was used by an empire to come into power and as capitalism took hold it grew into this thing where people just pay to learn answers to stupid questions really stupid questions what struck me the most about the seekers is that you know they were asking "Ooh, is this job gonna bring me wealth instead of you know what happened to my son that i gave up or what was it that my father said in his last words that i couldn't hear so I love that part of it. Uh, see, I would never fare well on this planet because I have a hard time asking people for things and favors and such. So I would probably waste my question on an icebreaker so that the oracle feels included. I would be like, oh. would you rather be a bird or a fish? You know what I mean? Like something stupid like that. And then boom, my question's done. Just because I tried to like give that guy like a moment to be like, thanks, man. Nobody asked about me. Nobody thinks to free the genie. You know what I mean? But that is uh, neither here nor there. I Do I think that this was a parallel for some of the systems and societal structures of our Earth? Yes and no. I definitely can see the ways in which this is an alternate take on a society that is, you know, bipedal and humanoid primarily. And the TV-driven obsession is certainly the route that we're going down <laughs> headlong, faster and faster every day. What really jumped out to me was the comparison to Fiona Staples' work on Saga. So for me, I was just like, oh, you know what? I didn't even think too much about the location. I just let it wash over me. I was like, I'm going to take it for what it is. Do we think that these two hero stories are eventually going to intertwine before the book is over? I'd like to say so. I definitely can't see a world in which they wouldn't. But this is also only the first issue. Who knows how much more there is to the Runa? I mean, there's so much more to the Runa story, but who knows how much more we'll be privy to? Uh, who knows the trajectory, frankly, of the Jane story? Like, I couldn't put these two stories together. But in my heart, I know they need to come together. Yeah, there's definitely a lot going on between the Hottie and Skull story, the Hela and Carnilla story, and the Runa and the uh, the Oracle story. So there's there's just so much that could happen that it may take us a while before they uh, they finally meet up again. And was there anything that you guys wish that we had gotten this issue that we hadn't? I know for me probably. The big thing I missed coming from the Return of the Valkyrie series is where is Mr. Horse? I really wanted to see Mr. Horse this issue, but we didn't. Secretly, part of me was really hoping that Mr. Horse went off with uh, Runa in the New World. And where do the Asgardians get all of these spaceships for? Like, where? How do they get these spaceships? She stole it. <gasps> she did. She, she stole it from a thief, actually. <laughs> I was kind of hoping, and I know this is probably incredibly unrealistic, but I kind of had hoped that we could have seen maybe just a little more Danny. Then, so it looks like next book, it looks like we're going to get Jane versus Craven the Hunter. Is that what that looks like to me? And it to you guys? does. I know that he reappeared recently. I'm not exactly sure how this would work. Um, oh, unless he's hunting uh, Hottie and Skull. <gasps> uh, oh, that makes sense. 
actually. Yeah. So I, I don't know. It could it could end up being pretty interesting. Is uh Craven something that you're familiar with at all, Maddie, or are you kinda like Spider Man yuck? Yeah, no, I have a lot of really specific Reddit search histories that pertain to, to mustachioed muscle men in fur. Um but I can't say that it has anything to do with comics. <laughs> um, I was I oh, I was so far away from my mic. So Craven, does Craven interest me? Oh, yes. The the trajectory of Return of the Valkyries was a little bit lost on me in a way that made me apprehensive about going into the Mighty Valkyries, which I found myself, in spite of myself, thoroughly enjoying both parts of. Do I see a world in which Craven fits into this picture? No, I really genuinely don't. But am I am I on board for it? Am I going to read it next month when it comes out? Yeah, absolutely. 